What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices, Madness Radio can be heard on KBOOFM, the Pacifica Network, and online at madnessradio.net. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Nirali Shah. Nirali teaches Buddhist meditation and is a certified mindfulness facilitator from UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. She lives in the Bay Area, California, and her teaching currently includes Google as well as Insight Meditation Center and Spirit Rock. Nirali has worked in slum communities in Asia for more than four years around social change. So welcome to Madness Radio, Nirali Shah. Hi, uh, delighted to be here. It's really wonderful to have you on this show. We've been friends for quite a while now and actually had the opportunity to do a meditation retreat with you recently. So it's really my honor to have you on the show. And we're going to be talking about meditation and also maybe some things that aren't talked about so much with meditation, the sort of the darker side or the shadow side, the difficult emotions, extreme states, strong, strong experiences and difficulties that maybe don't get talked about so much. So it's really wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Well, maybe one of the ways we should start is just to um, invite you to tell us a little bit about, because you have a very strong personal connection to meditation and Buddhist practice. And tell us how that started for you. How did that sort of begin? What was the the thing that got you interested in becoming a, a meditator? Because you've been practicing meditation for many, many years, yeah? Yeah, I, I think the most vivid memory I have is maybe being around nine or ten years old and having this going into long periods of the day where I'm just like observing my thoughts and my emotions and then I would write about it and that was so important to me and then over time when I was 19 or something I started like getting more curious about it and started sitting a lot of uh, retreats in my 20s and then I've been I guess, formally on this path for about 10 or 15 years now. So you, and you grew up in India. So this really started when you were nine or 10 years old. You were almost drawn to it as a calling, would you say, or something that was maybe a talent or an interest that was very deep in, inside of you from, from when you were a kid? Yeah, I mean, in India, uh, you grow up around these kind of teachings, but I never had any formal interest in it at that at that age, around nine or 10. But there was a deep interest in self-inquiry. There was a deep need to be authentic uh, and reflect on what's happening in my inner world. So I think that was, those were some of the earlier seeds of where it all started. And so when was it that you started to do formal meditation practice? Was there something that happened in your life that brought you to that? Yeah, it's really interesting. I was, um, Getting curious in spirituality, I believe, around 19 or something, 18 or 19. But I was uh, in in the U.S. Uh, in my early 20s and studying and working. And I had a fancy job in Malibu in advertising. And I felt, I remember like feeling uh, a deep sense of... Uh, I guess, meaninglessness or emptiness and also going through personal states emotionally, which were very hard. And now that I look back after 
more than a decade, uh, I think what I feel was happening was that my spirit was not being able to express itself in the world in this very raw way. And and I feel a lot of the confusion and emptiness. And even like I remember having very dark thoughts. Uh, and there would be times when I would, uh, at, at some point I quit my job and I quit everything and I spent like a month sitting at home and not meeting anyone and just being alone in silence and really like reflecting and going through very difficult periods also in that time. And and I feel like all of that had somewhere to do with wanting to question if there's a more rich way to be alive in life instead of uh, feeling kind of that you're just performing roles and living up to your uh, sort of, you know, these kind of suppressions or boxes of your identity that are set by the world. And so somewhere like meditation had a lot to do with opening up a lot of um, sort of uh, a deeper inner wisdom. Was there a Buddhist teacher that you met or how is it that you kind of learned meditation from that period of, of suffering? Was there a moment that you said, okay, now I want to start meditating? I think the first teacher was nature, like being a lot out in nature. And, and also there were inspiring uh, books and teachers such as J. Krishnamurti and uh, Sufi teachings. And at some point I started sitting a lot of uh, Vipassana retreats and uh, as thought uh, at that time, as thought by S.N. Goenka. And then over time, I uh, sit uh, Vipassana retreats in a different form, which is more informed by Thai and uh, Burmese teachers. So, so maybe you want to say a little bit about kind of when we're talking about Buddhism and meditation, there's a huge diversity. And so Vipassana is one sort of strand in that. And actually people... Um, many people are first exposed to the meditation through Vipassana because there are these free 10-day retreats that are offered around the world. So tell us just a little bit about the kind of the landscape when we're talking about Buddhist meditation. What are we talking about? What are some of the differences? So first, there are like so many forms of meditation outside of Buddhism. But then when we talk about Buddhist practices, uh, there are the Theravada teachings, which are more practiced in Thailand and Burma. There are the Mahayana teachings that we see in China and uh, the Zen in Japan. And then there is the Vajrayana teachings, which are the Tibetan Buddhism or the Buddhism that's practiced in Bhutan. And so within that, there are so many different forms of meditation practices uh, and the form that I started with was uh, Vipassana, which uh, translates as insight. And uh, the, in the popular context, we hear a lot about mindfulness meditation. And mindfulness uh, comes from the first factor of awakening in the Vipassana teachings. So mindfulness is translated as sati, which is the Pali word. And, uh, and the Sanskrit word for that is Smriti, which means to remember, to be aware. 
and uh, the way I would maybe a simple definition of the word mindfulness meditation would be uh, bringing a capacity to purposefully pay attention to your present moment experience as it arises in the form of thoughts, body sensations, emotions or feelings with a sense of non-judgment, with a sense of openness, curiosity and a willingness to be with what is. So that's a very open um, definition of what meditation is. And so it doesn't necessarily mean sitting in a particular posture or being part of a particular ritual or reciting any particular phrases or anything. It's really about the present moment and noticing what's happening. Yeah, the mindfulness practice is something that you can practice throughout the day. So it's a very rich daily life practice. However, the retreats have a very specific form and there is a direction and guidance and the retreats are like taking you somewhere. Uh, so you are going on a sort of a journey when you enter a retreat space. You start to practice meditation and the Theravadan tradition, mindfulness, and what is it actually that happens there that actually is helpful to you? What is it that that led you to or what is it that it benefited you with? So the withdrawing process was happening over two years uh, where I felt like I needed to cut away from my understanding of what the world is so that uh, sort of a, there could be spaciousness for something else to arise. What was it What was it that you were thinking the world is? You were just thinking that everything is advertising and getting, <laughs> making a living, or what is it that was so limiting? What was it that your belief was at that point? What was my context of reality? I mean, being born in an Indian family as a woman uh, and also having a lot of uh, ideas around what you're supposed to be and do in the world. So there's like a lot of conditioning that has come from education, from family, from uh, systemic uh, conditioning, from politics, from uh, economic system. And so there are ways in which you have somehow uh, believed in your mind that you're su supposed to perform a certain way. You're supposed to be a certain way. So there are like uh, subconscious uh, ways in which you have confined yourself in life and you feel like this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you can be and uh, this is normal. And then doing anything outside that, uh, you know, narrow uh path that has been created for you is as if you're doing something wrong or you're abnormal. And so for me, that process for those years was like really questioning that and really sitting with that and not and being kind to myself. And, and I was not always kind to myself. There was a lot of harshness and a lot of violence in the way one, one also holds this. And I could see that coming up for me. So it was a very tough time. This is so central because what you're describing is very relevant to those of us who have been in the mental health system or who have been suffering to the point of breakdowns and then just leaving our identities because we go into states of madness or extreme emotions. Because in that process, there's 
often a very strong sense of right and wrong and something is normal and something is abnormal. You should be able to do this. You should be able to feel and think and be in control in a certain way. And then something else is, is abnormal. It's not okay. And this is a conditioning that is really um, codified in psychiatric practice because it creates that line that certain kinds of things are acceptable and certain kinds of things aren't. And then so at the heart of mindfulness practice and meditation practice, there's a questioning of what is normal in a sense is kind of what you're saying. Absolutely. At the heart of the meditation practice is questioning literally the structure of thought, you know, so we, you're questioning the fundamentals of everything. And really, that's the that's the beauty and the power of that, because you're getting out of your mind. A lot of this practice is around relaxing the mind. And so, you know, we have all these um, structures in our world around education, around work. We go to offices, we're on the computers, we uh, have conferences, and all these things are stimulating thought and mind and, you know, like pulling the strains of your head and your nervous system. And in the practice, like, you really find these tools to really relax your nervous system and these nerve endings in your head. And when those are like relaxed and soothed, then a lot of energy like is saved. And that energy goes deeper into your torso and you get a much richer access into your emotional world. And that's not always easy because when you go into your emotional world, uh, you start seeing ways in which uh, you have confined yourself and sometimes strong and deep, uh, intense emotions might arise. Uh, and also just to say to what you were talking about, the violence, I think a big piece that you start seeing is that uh, the violence that we do to ourselves when we are afraid to be fully authentic and because we feel like uh, there's violence outside in the world uh, when I'm, uh, you know, when, when I'm not doing the, you know, performing the roles of the world that's expect, expecting it me to do. But there's a greater violence happening inside. And that's really what you start seeing when you practice is the ways in which we are unkind to that more sacredness that's inside us. So what is it that happened to you? You started, you started practicing, you started practicing in the Theravadan mindfulness tradition. And how did that benefit you? What was it that happened next? So what's really interesting is uh, when you go into a lot of these retreats, uh, one thing that starts happening is your ideas of rights and wrongs start dissolving. And so the inner critic or the judge starts sort of softening and that's very very powerful because then you are you don't have a center you know there isn't one center around which everything has to revolve so break that down for us how is it that meditation could be useful to help us to not be so harsh on ourselves and to not to judge ourselves what exactly does that look like so a lot of this practice is a very body-based practice and that's the most important thing that I love about this practice. I mean, if there is a number one thing in my life that I feel has been most precious 
in my entire life i would say it's this capacity to be in my body and to sense and feel my body uh in in a very very deep way so where the mind is not that active but but the wisdom of the body is arising and it's guiding my life so that's really where the conditioning is operating and the judgment and the critic is operating in these mental thinking loops and so if you can use a tool like meditation to to get out of that and to get more into your body it short circuits it and takes the energy away from that cycle of the self judgment and the cycle of the conditioning of thinking that you were talking about before Yes, absolutely. This is uh so interesting because what starts happening is uh as you practice more, you are entering the space of uh equanimity. And equanimity is like non-judgment. And that's that's such a sacred space to start entering in your body. through equanimity so it creates so much spaciousness in your being and equanimity is not possible without compassion so there's a lot of compassion and loving presence that you're offering yourself and as you do that uh it's 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 interesting the mind stops becoming active but there is a different quality of wisdom or insight that arises which is not necessarily uh, very cognitive but but it still has like a very powerful um, sort of voice in it and for me what happened was uh, it's so so one of the things that started happening is i i went to a retreat and it was so clear that i'm supposed to leave everything quit my job quit everything sell everything and go to india and uh, i ended up going and serving in a slum community for several years and uh, also like it started i started realizing that uh, connection to the earth is so important and so after working in the slums i spent more than a year living at farms and with tribal communities sometimes in forest communities and working uh just just spending more time in nature and doing organic farming so your life had lost its meaning and then you used meditation to kind of reexamine what your assumptions were yeah i mean my spirit was not uh i mean i i i might have thought in my head that okay i'm going to stay in the us and get a mortgage and more student loans and find uh, get married and have children and buy a bunch of cars and more houses and <laughs> and that's not really what my spirit wanted my spirit wanted to be in the slums and it wanted to be in the forest and it wanted to be at meditation retreats and so i feel immensely grateful that i could give myself that gift of time and space to really listen deeply to my body this is extremely important and it, it intersects um so much with what we talk about on madness radio uh, from jungian psychology and from ecological perspectives because what you're describing is that the suffering is really a conflict between what your deeper self your spirit wants and then kind of what your ego or your personality or the conditioning is telling you and if that conflict gets strong enough you will start to get depressed or you'll start to get symptoms or you get anxious or maybe even you go into madness or you go into psychosis because the spirit sort of rebels against your 
conscious mind saying, I want to go in this direction, but your spirit is saying, no, 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 you need to go in another direction. But while your spirit is rebelling, you don't know what's going on. All you know is you feel crazy or you feel depressed or you feel anxious. And then if you use a tool like mindfulness to kind of slow down, to step back and re-examine some of these automatic, repetitive, conditioned responses, then you'd start to discover that actually the conditioning that you had, who you think you were, actually there's something different. And then you can start to align more with what your spirit is seeking. And so in a sense, the symptom or the crisis or the depression in, in your experience is kind of like a messenger from the spirit. It's the spirit saying, hey, wait a second. I don't have the words to explain it to you right now, but all I can do is kind of put on the emergency brakes, bring this to a halt, and then hopefully force you to re-examine your assumptions and find a different direction for your life. Yeah, and the emergency breaks were depression, right? Like going through those years of withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And and so it's interesting. What you're saying is so powerful because, you know, it reminds me of uh, something that one of my mentors who's now like 95 years old and he's a Gandhian and he went to prison during the British freedom fight and he's very 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 inspiring human being and one one thing he told me which i find has been one of the most precious uh, teachings that he offered me in my life was he said that there's something very very sacred and tender inside each one of us and our work in the world is to take care of it. That's our only work. Our only work in life is to take care of that tender sacredness that's inside us. And what happens because of just the way our, in modern world, the way we are raised and education and all of that, is that we end up like forgetting that and we take in the ideas and thoughts of the world into our mind stream and that starts dictating what we should be or what we should look like or what we should do or not do and that's that's so heavy that's so heavy and on top of it I mean maybe we can talk a bit about oppressions later in the show but that's so heavy like taking in all this information from the world and not examining it and just then uh, un- subconsciously believing it, you know, and those turn into voices in our head. They turn into the inner critic. And that starts creating a lot of violence and chaos in our lives. And I think what you're describing is is really a rewilding process that the the that gentle, soft part of ourselves that we need to pay attention to inside of us that your your teacher was telling you about, that's really the wild part. And that wild part we've become disconnected from because we're domesticated, we're conditioned, we're trained into being a certain way in society. You can't express, you can't be this, you can't connect in a certain way. And that really cuts off that wild part. And so in a sense, it's, a, it's an ecological imperative. And the tool that we have for many people has been a very useful tool is meditation and mindful, mindfulness to reexamine that conditioning and then give some space to listen to other parts of us and maybe become more of an integrated being that's more in touch with its animal nature, that's more in touch with its wild nature? 
Wow, it's so incredible you say that because I'm giving a talk at Google next week and the title of the talk is Meditation for Rewilding Yourself. So, uh, yeah, you're like spot on. I think there is something very, very primal and very raw and very almost like a deeper nature spirit in each one of us. And it it is not it is hard to constrain that spirit through Google calendars and uh, you know mortgages and <laughs> taxes and bills and you know none of us are actually set up internally to to function uh, stress free uh, in that system actually. And so that spirit inside us wants to express itself and the expression is not going to, it's going to be very unique. And I think the idea around meditation is to really, really get in touch with that, really, really create space for that because some of the most powerful uh, things come from that space. I mean, if you had met me 15 years ago, you would have met a very, very different Nirali who was tired and who was, you know, weighed down and who was, who didn't feel this level of vibrancy and aliveness and sort of uh, strength and power in her body. And that has so much to do with that spirit being. Uh, really oppressed in so many ways. And I think that spirit often expresses itself in the form of some kind of what psychiatry calls a symptom or some kind of disturbance or some condition or, or syndrome or something that we then pathologize because we're trying to domesticate it, whereas actually the compassion of a mindfulness practice says, wait a second, let's set, step back from our assumptions, let's step back from our conditioning and actually examine with curiosity, with openness, Maybe there's a message here. Maybe there's a purpose here. Um, what about someone who would make an assumption that, okay, meditation is about stopping my thoughts. And I tried that. I sat down, I meditated, I couldn't stop my thoughts, and therefore meditation doesn't, doesn't work for me because I can't do it. Uh, that touches upon kind of the shadow side of the way meditation is thought in our world. And it's a little sad, but what I'm discovering is that a lot of meditation in our world has been co-opted by the system to make us feel even more domesticated. And so you will find two fine kinds of, I mean, there's a whole spectrum, but largely speaking, you will find two kinds of meditators. One is people who have turned into very good people. You know, they are very uh, easy to tame in the world. And uh, they are very kind and they will do things uh, the way they are required to do. And that's one way of meditation where you are basically taming yourself even more. There's a lack of vitality and feelings. So, so I think meditation be becomes a way of disassociation from feelings instead of getting even more sort of into the, into the rich soil of things, you know. So th there's, there's, a, there's a way meditation can become uh, very dry, basically. And then people kind of learn that, well, if I'm having strong emotions or my mind is really, really 
wild and out of control, then I just can't do meditation. I must be failing at meditation. So I must try and try harder and push all that away. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like, for example, um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Actually, I was sitting a one month silent meditation retreat. And this was, uh, so these retreats are interesting. You wake up at five, four or five in the morning, and then you're meditating for 12 hours a day. And uh, for one month, you're in complete silence. And the only time you get to speak is for about 12 minutes once in four days with your teacher. There's a 12-minute interview with your teacher. And uh, I remember what was happening at that retreat at some point was a lot of anger was, was arising in me. And uh, I was very fortunate to have a teacher who was very wise. And uh, in, in, in other spaces, if uh, intense emotions are arising, they might tell you that, oh, you know, just concentrate on your sensations and these emotions will go away. And there is this implicit way of saying that there's something wrong with anger. Uh, in this case, what happened was I was able to really, really feel the anger and allow the full extent of the anger. And these retreats are very safe spaces to be able to do that. And you also learn to do that in skillful ways so that you're not harming yourself or others. And so when you are allowing that much intensity of anger, which is a strong emotion, you start really seeing what's beneath the anger because my experience is beneath all these strong emotions is something that's calling on you that has not been resolved. Yeah, that's the idea of the messenger again, that we push away the wildness, we push away the anger or whatever it is, we call it a symptom, we call it something we don't want to be curious about or explore, and then we miss that there's actually some kind of meaning or message in there. And that's the, the power, I think, of mindfulness and meditation is really that it just gives us an awareness and a curiosity about all of us, all the different parts of us, not just to say, how do we train ourselves to be more relaxed, but how do we really live with compassionately all of who we are and, and all of the people around us, all the different parts of us that we see reflected in the people around us. Exactly. Yeah. And so when you see something like anger, you start realizing like, wow, beneath this anger is some kind of a passion for justice, you know, and there's something which is wrong and which wants to like, breathe out which which needs space to breathe and you start seeing the deeper sort of needs inside your system and it's such a loving beautiful process around offering yourself that gift of really listening with so much empathy and I feel this also comes to a very, very important piece that I care about is community. Because in my practice, one thing that has been really important is I've realized that this practice is not a solo journey at all. I mean, I'm not sure how, I, I mean, I've heard a lot of stories of people going into caves for 20 years. I do not see it as a solo journey for myself. I feel it is a very, very relational practice. And so some of my deeper insights and uh, turning points in my life have come 
through sitting retreats as well as a lot of relational work. I remember that was one of the things that we did in the retreat that I was with you at is there was a lot of um, uh, group work and relationship work and sharing. And, and you don't think of that as the kind of the stereotypical, you know, sit upright, cross-legged and just listen to a bell. But really the, the essence of it is awareness, not just of our inner self and our inner experience, but also of what happens between us. Yeah, yeah. And to give you an example, like when I'm sitting alone in meditation, I'm what I'm essentially doing is I'm offering presence, this very open, kind, non-judgmental presence in my body. And so things start, you know, difficult things sometimes start coming up and then they release out of the system. Sometimes they release from the very roots. Now, imagine when I do that with a group of people and when I'm giving you this kind, non-judgmental awareness and presence and this very gentle, loving curiosity. When I do that, things can come up for you and there is a certain healing that happens. And I am, I think one of the things that I care a lot about is to create more and more spaces and communities where we are doing that for each other. This is extraordinarily important because in the context of of therapy, as well as community healing, so much of what we're talking about is, is trauma. And so much of what we're talking about is the violence that's happened in the past and the conditioning and the, um, the domestication and the limits that are put on people have to do with, well, we can't talk about these kinds of things. We have to be ashamed of them. We have to hide them inside of ourselves. We have to bury them. We certainly can't express what we're going through. And so the opportunity to have, um, a chance where there's a compassionate listener, where there's a witness that's happening, where there's a gentle curiosity is extraordinarily powerful for breaking down that resistance to facing things and looking at things and exploring them. And it creates a space where people have an experience of a supportive, loving presence, which is what was missing in the, tra in the traumatic experience. And so if you can learn to actually have a, a more open and not judgmental compassion towards yourself. And you can also do that towards others. I think it has an extraordinary power to heal trauma. But I just want to get, I just want to zero in on this point that we were talking about before about the accepting what is and allowing what is. Because some people find, you know, sitting meditation isn't right for them. I've worked with a number of people that find that, you know, sitting, it's too much comes up. And then there's also walking meditation. And there are people who find that walking meditation is very soothing. There's times when I can't sit, there's too much going on in my body, but walking really slowly, wow, that's when the emotions come. And that's when I start to really feel connected. And then there are also people who find other forms of mindfulness, other things that train their awareness. Like there's people who use ecstatic dance, for example. So would you say that it's really about everybody's individual way of finding their own path for mindfulness and awareness? Yeah, I mean, I would say sitting meditation is not right for everyone at all times. I mean, even for me, who has sat thousands of hours, like, I don't think every single day, sitting meditation is right for me. So so yeah, and some things that come up for me, uh, while I'm doing five rhythms, dance, uh, they don't come up on the cushion, like some deep emotions come up. And there's some beautiful, uh, I don't know, like, 
it's it's very powerful things that happen on the dance floor sometimes and so meditation happens in so many ways we are all sort of in a wave sometimes we are going up sometimes we are in the middle sometimes we are down and meditation is essentially no matter where i am on the wave in any particular day how am i meeting myself that's essentially what is meditation is how am i meeting myself no matter where i am on the wave of life and am i meeting myself with compassion if you're just tuning in this is madness radio and our guest today is narali shah she's a buddhist meditation teacher and certified mindfulness facilitator from UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. She lives in the Bay Area, California, and her teaching currently includes Google, as well as the Insight Meditation Center and Spirit Rock. Uh, Nirali has worked in slum communities in Asia for more than four years around social change. Do you think that sometimes the meditation, especially as it's practiced in the West and the United States, has, has just become another um, individualist tool, another sort of consumerist um, pleasure for finding relaxation and people are really avoiding responsibilities of oppression and social justice and getting involved and engaged in the world? All right. You're touching a very sensitive nerve here. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, meditation has been co-opted in a way for us to be more productive and more sort of um, manageable uh, cogs in this larger machinery. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, if we are looking at meditation as just a way of uh, reducing stress and anxiety so that we can function more normally in, in the way the world wants us to function, then, then yeah, I don't know. I feel meditation can do more harm even it can as as i said earlier it, it can be very disassociative from our feelings and create a sense of apathy uh, instead of equanimity which is uh, kind of apathy is a near or indifference uh, to our own feelings our own needs our own emotions and apathy towards the world so people sometimes uh, misunderstand being calm and relaxed and still as uh, being disassociated or apathetic. And I've seen that both. I mean, I've been to meditation retreats where people are meditating for 30 years, but somehow it's very hard for them to, to really feel uh, all the rich compost of emotions that is moving inside them. Do you think that there's a way in which um, meditation, as it's been practiced, is kind of male-dominated and very connected to patriarchy, and that there's a connection between women and wildness and emotionality that the sort of the male meditator has been suppressing in some ways? Yeah, it's interesting you say that uh, because uh, the popular meditation, which is the vipassana or the mindfulness meditation, it comes from these roots of uh, this lineage of teachers, which were mostly men. And so it is a very masculine form. And so not a lot of teachings in that form are around emotions or feelings. Uh, it's also a very beneficial form, so I don't want to take that away from it. But at the same time, uh, yeah, there is there is a good amount of patriarchy involved uh, in in 
in religion in general and it shows up for sure in in the way uh, some of these buddhist practices are taught as well i also i also think that sometimes westerners will look at an asian culture and just romanticize it and say wow isn't tibet wonderful isn't hinduism wonderful and we sort of pulled it up in a pedestal because we feel like we're lacking deep spiritual traditions that nourish us on a daily level and so we romanticize and we exoticize and then we don't see that hey there's oppression and sexism and racism and exploitation in those cultures as well i mean we tend to just want to you know hold it up in this romantic image which is in itself is a kind of colonialism and a kind of of racism because it, it denies the the shared humanity that all cultures and all human humans have all of us face struggles with oppression yeah i mean i'm glad you're bringing up this piece because it's 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 not fair to create this idyllic idea of what uh, these cultures are like and uh, in the theravada tradition for example women uh not you know if you're a woman nun you're not allowed to be fully ordained so essentially you are not allowed to teach in a way and you're always uh, kind of a bit subservient to the male monks and uh, there are some women who broke those rules and in these last 20 years like they have been uh you know becoming you know, yeah in they're fully ordained Uh, in the Thai tradition, but uh, I mean, I heard a few months back, uh, like there there was a bombing in a monastery, a nunnery, because uh, these women were getting fully ordained. So there are all kinds of things happening, even in these extremely religious settings, and so we have to be careful and find our own, um, yeah, have our own compass, inner compass to guide us. So how can meditation and mindfulness contribute to the struggle against social injustice? Is it more than just, you know, being calm and relaxed when you go to the to the protest? So this is so important because this is a topic that doesn't get spoken enough in the meditation world is that how can you teach meditation without a deep understanding and a deep dialogue around social justice and systemic oppressions because uh some people uh the way they teach meditation it it's i mean the way i have heard it in certain cultures is that it turns into this kind of a transcendent practice where uh this there's something wrong with the world there's a lot of suffering in the world and i'm supposed to transcend and go into nirvana go somewhere else so that i don't have to feel the difficulties and stress of this world and so hopefully everyone will go to nirvana at some point and so uh you know we we won't have people suffering uh, in this world that's one viewpoint uh, as i have been practicing and i and i had that viewpoint too when i started off and over the years what has changed for me is that i feel a deep connection with this absolute reality where there are states which are very very powerful and over time when you are practicing you do experience mental and emotional states and even states which are beyond sort of the mind matter phenomena and uh, they are very wholesome and nourishing states and they're hard to even talk about uh because because language is limiting but 
what happened for me more and more as I experienced these states is actually the desire to come fully in my body on earth in this reality even more fully uh, came alive. So I feel more connected to reality and mother earth than I ever did before. And I feel like there is a desire to understand that in order to be free in in this, uh, you know, in my existence on earth, it's important to understand all the ways in which freedom has been curbed, freedom has been taken away. And so I feel way more present than I ever did around freedom, around being uh, a gender freedom or freedom around race or economic oppression or all of these different types of oppression are like so much more alive for me today than they have ever been. And I can see how they have a huge role to play. So I cannot go, I, can, I cannot have a corporate where I'm teaching meditation, but in that corporation, we are not talking about economic oppression. If in that corporation, we are not talking about uh, race, and gender and all of these things, like if we are, are, are like sexual orientation and the freedom around uh, gender orientation, like if we are not talking about that along with meditation, then I don't know how are we talking about deeper awareness and freedom. Yeah, because we're not aware of one of the hugest parts of human experience, which is social injustice. So when people hear that you're teaching at Google, you're not just teaching, you know, sort of like the kind of meditation that one might stereotype think that's being taught at Google, which is how to work harder and, you know, not complain about it, you're teaching a very different kind of meditation. Yeah, this is so important because when I, because the way it's understood is that as you meditate, you will have less stress. Uh, my experience <laughs> is that in some ways that is true, but in some ways, a lot of deep stuff around the ways you have oppressed your spirit will come up to the surface. And that probably would be a bit of a stressful situation to enter. So it's not going to be complete stress reduction so that I can be more productive and create more Excel sheets. What's going to probably happen is you might have to take time off. You might have to go away for a month and just sit with yourself because some deep stuff will get unearthed. And when you will unearth that, you will start seeing that in ways, uh, yeah, that there are injustices that have entered, uh, that have conditioned your spirit. I'm so glad you're talking about this because, I mean, meditation is a tool and it's a powerful tool and any tool can be used destructively as well as constructively because when you meditate, you can learn to start taming your emotions and controlling through breath control and through you know letting your your feelings pass you can learn to start shutting yourself down and bypass the experiences that you're going through but what you're talking about is really the opposite about that really embracing the wildness and the out of control nature of whatever it is that's coming because again you know, it is just a tool. It's a powerful tool. It can be used in a constructive way and or a destructive way. And that's why, you know, in meditation practice, we talk so much about connecting with teachers, having a good community to work with, because you don't want to just, you know, dive into this and discover that you have this powerful tool and then not how to know how to use it in a useful way. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of spiritual bypassing that happens through meditation. And I think that's one of the things you want to be most careful about. When you when you say spiritual bypass, what do you mean? Uh, pretty much what you said right now. I mean, spiritual bypass shows up in so many different ways. Uh, but one way is that uh, you start controlling your emotions. So you start seeing as emotions as a problem. And you feel that if you're getting intense, even uh, spiritual experiences, there might be something wrong with you. And so you because you have this um, map of what uh, spiritual progress looks like, map that has been created by someone. And so you want to live up to that map. And I would just I mean, I would just say on the other side of that, that sometimes it can be really useful to control your emotions. I mean, I, you know, when I'm dealing with a situation where I'm out in public and suddenly I start to feel very threatened and very mistrustful and very overwhelmed and I realize, whoa, wait a second, I'm having a trauma response. This is not the present moment. This is a flashback of memory of violence that I've had. Then, yes, I do use tools that I've learned in meditation to come back into my body, to calm my breath to bring myself back centered into my core, and then I can manage the situation that I'm in. But hopefully what I don't do is just bury the whole experience. But then when the time and place is right, I can say, whoa, what was going on there? What was coming up for me? Maybe I really need to explore this rather than just suppressing it and shutting it down because I have this relaxation tool in my toolkit. Right. So the word skillfulness comes up a lot in this practice is around how do you skillfully hold all these emotions and essentially all these decades of practice is for you to learn skillfulness around holding that and and also it's important to offer the other side of it like meditation or any of these practices doesn't give you a license to go around uh, exuding expressing your emotions out into the world in ways that that are like harmful so I think which I think some meditation teachers have taken to an extreme they get very power into power trips and they think that they are enlightened so therefore they are beyond good and evil and they can just set the rules and then be very abusive to the people in the hierarchy under them so it's a, it can be very dangerous if you see it as a, a license or a permission in that way yeah and they can throw tantrums and yeah it's it's uh, it can get pretty horrible in that situation so i feel it's not around uh, going around expressing your emotions and for me I mean, for example, if... Uh, or exp expressing your sexual desires. There have been so many scandals with spiritual teachers who, <laughs> who just start having sex with their students, even though they're preaching celibacy or preaching abstinence. Yeah, yeah. And hence, uh, it's also helpful to understand that uh, the way these practices traditionally have been laid out is that there is a lot of work you do at the foundation, I mean, you do years and years of foundation. You do years and years of work around just um, eth ethics, around sila, uh, which is just uh, learning how to uh, be a more compassionate, ethical person in the world. And so there are very and and you work with intense emotions much later in the practice because you have found that capacity to go back to the refuge, to that restedness in your body when intense emotions show up. That really resonates with me because sometimes people have been through these really powerful psychotic experiences or experiences that are called psychosis, and they're really just extreme rage or extreme 
anger and there's a pull that says, oh, I've got to you know, f- figure that out. I've got to get that out. And maybe not. Maybe now is the time to get some distance from it and then come back to it when you're ready. Right now, it's really about the food and the house and the, you know, finding good people to be around, finding a good routine, just getting to a safer space. That Those experiences will be there when the time is right. You don't necessarily have to just dive all the way into them until you're prepared, really. Yeah, there's so much wisdom to what you're saying right now, because a lot of times people think that they have to keep working on emotions and keep working on body sensations. And and I feel like that becomes a trap, too. That's a trap. That's clearly a trap. So I feel like and for me, like a lot of this practice has so much to do with delight. Like a lot of this practice is taking, you know, even at retreats, like uh, I'm meditating for several hours and say intense, strong emotions are showing up. I'm not going to work through them at that point. I'm going to actually, those emotions came up, they're not going to go anywhere. But in fact, instead of meditating, I'm going to go out for a really nice walk, or I'm going to have a nice cup of tea, I'm going to smell the flowers, I'm going to hang out with the deer. And so there's there's a lot around taking in delight and uh, experiencing this beauty of being in this human form. Which is so simple. I mean, I think that's one of the greatest gifts of awareness and mindfulness and meditation is it, it sensitizes us to just the the simple beauty and joy that we can have just from a cup of tea or just being able to see a sunset. And that really, it it brings down a lot of the pressure, I think, that a lot of us kind of feel to maybe with the ambition and the money and the trying, you know, getting further and going faster. And the whole culture is driven by this more and more and more. And actually we have plenty that we can enjoy. There's a lot of simplicity that we should be accessing. Yeah. And I feel like how, I mean, for me, the question that is alive is, uh, and in the practice, what naturally unfolds is bringing this sense of stability and restedness in the practice. The practice is also not about go, go, go. You know, the practice is very restful. And, and I think we have, we, we just trust that. We trust that when we are in that space of restedness, things will unfold as they have to, as they as they are going to. And so it's not about, because I have also, uh, when I teach at retreats, I have also found students who, who get ambitious and who feel like this is a grand self-improvement project. And then they have to... Uh, keep going and you know they're like in one year I'm going to fix everything about me and and that can be so sad you know that can be so tiring and this practice is not about tiring yourself it's about really enjoying and relaxing and and it's so much about intimacy it's intimacy with your body this practice is not about trying to get rid of parts of yourself that you don't like but it's about how can I meet those parts with greater intimacy and compassion. So I think one misconception that sometimes we have in this practice is that the more I meditate, the more years of meditation I do, my life is going to become better. 
and I have some good news and bad news. And that is that your life may not necessarily change. Uh, I mean, when I even hear about the life of the Buddha after he became enlightened, uh, his life had so many problems uh, up until 80 or something till he lived. Like there were so many chaotic events and scandals and all kinds of things that were happening in his life. And his life was not like perfect or smooth. And I think this practice is not about uh, figuring out or fixing or solving something that is broken. Um, this practice is actually your capacity for being with randomness and uncertainty. And in fact, even inviting that. In fact, to, to me, like one word that comes up a lot around this practice is you are no more, your, your need for control is no more the same. And to me, that's really important. That comes back to the idea of rewilding and getting more in touch with our unconditioned, untamed selves, because that's really what life and reality is all about. Yeah, yeah, that's what we do, right? Like, as, as human beings, what we have done to nature is that we have, we have ex ex exuded so much control over nature and we have uh, controlled the habitat, we, we control animals, we have put them in cages. And really, like, to me, that is the violence. The violence is not what happens in the forest. Like, when you go into nature and in the dark, like, there's a lot of randomness and uncertainty. And it's not always safe. And there will be probably problems when you, when you like, go out into the wild. But that's not as violent to me as controlling. And so... The more we practice, we are realizing that our capacity to live with life's randomness and uncertainty increases and we feel more trusting. We feel more trusting in the laws of nature and we feel like we can rest and relax and we, 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 we feel that we, can, we will be taken care of. Narali, we are just about out of time. Let us know how people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about your work and how they can contact you. Thank you so much, Will. This has been a lot of fun chatting with you. And uh, you can get more information uh, about the work I'm doing or get in touch with me if you have any questions uh, on my website. And that is www.nirales which is niralis.com. Nirali Shah, thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Nirali Shah. She teaches Buddhist meditation and is a certified mindfulness facilitator from UCLA's Mindful Awareness Research Center. She lives in the Bay Area, California, and her teaching currently includes Google as well as Insight Meditation Center and Spirit Rock. Nirali has worked in slum communities in Asia for more than four years around social change. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is sponsored by the Icarus Project and Portland Hearing Voices. Host is Will Hall and producer is Nina Packabush. Madness Radio can be heard on KBOO-FM 
and the Pacifica Network, and shows are archived online at madnessradio.net. <laughs>